Welcome to Ingenious, a podcast brought to you by Engineers Without Borders at the University of Bristol. At Ingenious, we explore the future by talking with the pioneering engineers of today. In this episode, I speak with Jacob Bernson, Research Manager at Tech Against Terrorism, about the work the NGO does. Jacob tells us about the UN Seated project to combat terrorism while respecting human rights. He also explains how offline factors manifest themselves in the online world and how smaller tech platforms can struggle to deal with these issues. As always, I start by asking Jacob to introduce himself and describe how the organisation got where it is today. My name is Jacob Bernson. I am the research manager at Tech Against Terrorism, which is a public-private partnership that was launched in 2016. In 2016, the United Nations Counterterrorism Executive Directorate, or UNCTAD, uh, decided that they um, that they should look into uh, ways of exploring public-private partnerships to tackle terrorist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. So, what happened in 2016 is that. Uh, the, the UNC that launched this project looking at these challenges specifically by by uh, conducting three workshops globally one in Kuala Lumpur, one in Zurich and one in San Francisco and these workshops brought together stakeholders from uh, the tech sector, from law enforcement from civil society and various uh, governments and intergovernmental organizations and the outcomes of these specific workshops were, uh, were, were, were four sort of key conclusions, I guess. Uh, one is the importance of human rights when when tackling terrorist use to the internet. Uh, the, the second one is the importance of the offline offline space uh, and that this is not a problem that is only uh, present in, in the online space. This is a problem that manifests itself in the online space but has root causes in, in real life. Uh, the third one is that there's a, still a limited uh, evidence base for a lot of the work that goes on in this in this industry. Uh, that has become a bit better since 2016 but uh, in my own personal opinion I think that's still uh, generally true. And the fourth is that as you can imagine, startups or smaller companies have limited capacity to take this problem on in in a in an adequate and effective manner. So those four sort of key uh, conclusions are very much what, what what has guided Tech Against Terrorism since we were set up as as an uh, independent organization uh, following that sort of consultation uh, period with the with UNC TED uh, back in uh, 20, 2017. Uh, so we work we still work closely with UNC TED where we we say that we are. Uh, launched and supported by UN Seated, which is very much true. Uh, but we're not a UN organization. We have, have our own sort of uh, independent structure. And then in addition to, to the UN, we obviously also work closely with the tech industry. So our, man, our, our mantra is sort of supporting the global tech industry uh, whilst respecting human rights. And, and predominantly, we work with smaller tech companies who have uh, fewer resources and less expertise in-house to deal with this problem. In fact, a lot of the the platforms that we do see being exploited by terrorist groups uh, are run by just one person uh, who might have a a full time job, and they're doing this. They're running this uh, file sharing site or whatever it might be uh, from their bedroom, essentially. So, um, ensuring that that these people and these companies have the expertise uh, and resources, most of all, uh, available to them uh, to take uh, effective action on this problem is is a large part of our work. So we do this through. 
through a variety of ways. So we like to say that we work across three work streams. Uh, the first one being outreach. Um, and this is where we uh, we do a lot of open source intelligence monitoring uh, to, to, to see which specific platforms are at risk, which specific platforms are being exploited. Um, we then try to build constructive working relationships with, with these sites and try to get them engaged in our work in order to, to sort of help them. Uh, the second part is uh, knowledge sharing. Um, so this is where we work with a body called the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, which is a coalition set up by Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft and Google back in 2017. So what we do with them is that we take a lot of the uh, lessons that, that those larger companies have, have acquired throughout the process because a lot of these companies have invested heavily in in, uh, in tackling the spread of terrorist content on their sites in in the past few years, and then we share uh, any any such lessons with with other parts of the tech industry, mainly through uh, through webinars, but also th- also through in person uh, workshops and so on. Uh, but we also focus on on cross sector collaboration and knowledge sharing between industries because it's important to note that there are there are pockets of knowledge with each within each industry that are. Uh, useful for tech companies. So that's why we work closely with academia and civil society, because a lot of these sectors sit on a lot of expertise uh, that might actually help uh, tech platforms uh, take effective action on terrorist activity on their sites. And then uh, the last sort of pillar is operational capacity building. And this is where we use our in-house dev capacity to help platforms in a more practical way, whether that's tool building or uh, helping them think uh, think through any sort of modeling uh, that might help them identify content, for example. we um, uh, Last year, we worked with an academic blog called Jihadology, which is uh, the world's sort of main hub of primary source jihadist uh, content. Uh, it's entirely meant for educational and academic purposes. However, as you can imagine, there were signs that it was exploited by ISIS and Al-Qaeda uh, in particular. So what we did is that we helped Jihadology build a password word uh, protection system, which means that now only those with legitimate um, academic uh, study interests in, in in sort of getting access to this material is are allowed on the site. Uh, so th- those are sort of the, the three ways that we engage with the tech industry. Uh, obviously, the topic of terrorism is a large and you know hotly debated one. So starting really from the basics, how do terrorists often use the internet, and um, what is their aims when using it? We we have seen a few different behaviors from terrorists online, and we like to look at at this in, in a few different ways. So obviously, you have the the more strategic use of the internet by terrorists uh, for terrorist purposes, and that often concerns things like uh, propaganda, for example, because that's that's all about making a point to the public or achieving a specific political aim through propaganda. Um, propaganda obviously often is uh, shared on content sharing platforms, social media, uh, but also smaller content sharing sites. Uh, and, and this is an issue that's often debated and discussed. There's been a lot of uh, media attention to to uh, a perceived uh, lack of action on part of the part of the larger tech companies on online terrorist content, for example. But we also shouldn't forget the more operational uh, uses of technology for terrorist purposes. So that includes everything from uh, the use and abuse of fintech uh, technologies, such as you know payment providers, crowds crowdfunding, that kind of thing. But also uh, messaging apps for sort of uh, attack planning or sort of day-to-day coordin- coordination. 
um, we at Tech Against Terrorism are also looking uh, more and more at the role that uh, DNS registrars and web hosting providers are, are playing in this in this in this equation as well. Because um, as, as far as as far as we're concerned, they also have a responsibility uh, to some extent to 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 ensure that everyone that they provide services to uh, are are not doing so for any terrorist purpose. And then, of course, looking forward. Um, we're quite concerned of the increased use of, uh, of, or what we see as the increased risk of terrorists using decentralized platforms, uh, where it will, to some extent, become imp- impossible to to take effective action on content. There are a lot of these platforms, millions of sites online. Uh, how is it possible to see uh, which one of these is being used in malicious ways and which ones are just normal sites? How how can you tell? Is it possible for humans to go through and check all this or? Obviously, will there need to be more automated solutions? I think that's a very good question, and I think what you need is is some sort of combination of the two. So, for example, at Tech Against Terrorism, we have an open source intelligence team uh, led by uh, Laurent Bodo, uh, who's who's a, who's a great um, and brilliant OSINT researcher. So, we do a lot of our uh, research through making effective use of, of open source intelligence techniques. Um, so that includes some automation, but a lot of it is sort of human uh, human led. Um, Having said that, I think the the approach is to uh, the best approach is to is to try and find find some scalable solution, but with u- using human verification and human expertise in the loop. Because, uh, I mean, it's 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 sort of a cliche by now, but um, a machine will never have the, the same sort of nuance as as humans will, or maybe they will, but we're nowhere near that as of yet. So, for us, it's it's really about uh, making effective use of technology, but using the, the the core expertise that we have in the team as well. Um, so as well as these smaller platforms, media organizations and larger platforms have a part to play. Do you think that sometimes some of these media companies can overstep their bounds um, in good reporting and often lead to more radicalization, propaganda uh, and inciting violence really mm-hmm. through the way that they report and what they report yeah. and what they show? I think that's a great question and I think um, the question of the media is very, very interesting. Uh, I think it might be useful to take a step back and sort of uh, ask yourself what terrorists want and what they want is essentially to uh, achieve some sort of political change how will they do that through influencing society in various ways that's why attacks for example could be a, a way for them to to sort of force a reaction, whether it be uh, draconian legislation, whether it be social division, uh, suspicion against against Muslims, for example, if it's if it's uh, an Islamist-inspired uh, attack, um, all these sort of things uh, terrorists uh, terrorists sort of thrive from and is sort of uh, feed upon uh, upon them. Um, so I think in that landscape, I think it's very important for the media to ask themselves. Do we want to play into to terrorist hands by, for example, reporting that might uh, lead to more social division? Uh, do we want to pit, pit communities against each other? Uh, do we want to fe- do we want to make minorities um, uh, feel more insecure in society? Uh, but then, on, on the other hand, as well. Um, We've seen uh, in a, in quite a few examples in 2019, we saw that the mainstream media, which uh, on occasion is quite um, 
quite critical of platforms like Facebook and YouTube uh, and Twitter, to name a few, um, for their uh, for a perceived failure to to take action on terrorist content. We saw these same outlets uh, effectively spreading the Christchurch video uh, after the Christchurch attack, where 51 people were killed. Uh, we saw, I think, you were able to download the uh, the whole PDF manifesto uh, of the attacker from the Daily Mail's website, for example. Um, same after Halle, Germany, uh, that attack. We saw um, several UK outlets uh, publishing uh, photos of, of dead bodies, of, of, of victims. Um, and those are things that ov- obviously all play into terrorist hands. So I think... Um, you know the balance. It's it's important that uh, that reporting is accurate, that that it really confronts these very tough issues. But news outlets really need to ask themselves if they're playing into terrorist hands or not. So as well as news outlets, people, um, communities, uh, everyone often has a part to play in how they see this information, uh, how they process it, and what actions they take from it. Uh, do you think there is a role to play uh, in in education in education and educating people on? what these organizations seek to achieve? Certainly. Um, education is is a big part of what we do at Tech Against Terrorism, actually. So um, our main sort of focus is obviously to, to support the wider, the global tech industry in tackling terrorist use of the internet whilst respecting human rights. So... Um, in doing so, we have we work across three different work streams. So the first one is outreach, which is uh, effectively reaching out to companies and building constructive working relationships with them. The second one is knowledge sharing, uh, and the third one is operational capacity building. So going back to that second uh, aspect, knowledge sharing, this is really where education comes into play because a lot of the um, a lot of our research actually finds that some of the smaller tech companies are. In, in in some extent, the, the largest strategic threat when it comes to facing this issue, given that they see a lot of exploitation on their sites, but they have uh, they don't have any resources uh, or any expertise to take this uh, this this issue on in 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 a good way. So uh, a lot of what we do is providing some of these companies with with sort of simple educational tools around uh, terrorist logos logos uh, symbols uh, terminology. Um, and and also helping them uh, through a mentorship process where we where we advise them on specific updates and language changes they can make to their terms of service, their community guidelines, uh, and how they can uh, produce transparency reporting a- as well. Um, going forward, we'll be working more and more with with tech companies to help them on the more, on the more technical side as well, with sort of operational capacity building. So for us, education is definitely a, a key part. But I think generally for the vi- wider public as well um, increasing you know critical thinking media literacy all these things are Im- important and um, I think it's also important for people to know that they have a part to play in in, in supporting both us and tech companies really in 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 um, in tackling this problem and, and making society a safer place essentially because um, a lot of uh, a lot of tech companies now are desperately craving expertise from the outside that they can you know operationalize in through their policies or through enforcement of their policies so if anyone has a good idea or any anything that you that you think is, a, is something that we should take on to the tech sector I very much encourage you to get in touch with us tech against terrorism so the threat of terrorism has been one that has been around for a long time, uh, as well as propaganda and misinformation. Uh, in teaching tech companies about certain symbols or phrases or ideologies, will the problem that 
is faced by the general public and by uh, tech companies ever really be solved or can it only be mitigated? Without sounding like a pessimist, I don't think that... I don't think that what, to be honest, I don't think that what we do will ever solve the problem of terrorism generally. Uh, As I said before, I think terrorism manifests itself in the online space, but it's not caused by the internet. It's not caused by technology. It's it's, it's caused by real world uh, problems. And, you know, scholars that are, you know, way smarter than me, I disagree on exactly which is the, the or the root causes. To, to you know to terrorism to violent extremism to extremism so and you know given that we've seen um, some sort of insurgent groups or terrorist groups through throughout history in in every single time period I don't think we're ever going to be in a position where we can say terrorism doesn't exist anymore uh, that doesn't mean that it's not important to keep fighting it of course um, so what we're saying to to lawmakers is to um, you know feel free to introduce uh, measures that might help um, uh, tackle terrorist use of the internet feel feel free to engage us uh, feel free to support tech companies in in identifying ways that might help them uh, tackle this this problem head-on but please don't ignore the the root causes please don't ignore uh, the very real world problems that lead to to individuals uh, becoming attracted by by terrorist ideology so the lines between terrorist use and non-terrorist use uh, can often be blurred, as you say, through interesting questions such as intent. Uh, why is it so important then to allow things uh, that could be harmful in the interests of free speech? I mean, first of all, it depends on the kind of, of harm, uh, right? And um, it comes back to what kind of society we'd, we'd like to be and what sort of values that we that we hold in our, in our society. And, you know, this is a very difficult question when, you know, when we work, since we work globally, right? We work with governments and tech companies across the world. And if, you know, if you ask someone based in Europe, um, should there be restrictions to free speech? I think most people would, after, you know, at least some thinking, would probably say yes. For example, in Germany, it's it's illegal to to show the the swastika. Um, for example, so that that's a restriction on free speech. Whereas in the U.S., uh, with the First Amendment, free speech is very sort of <laughs> free. Um, so, I think this is a very difficult question, and and, and it's in, in the answer you would get would differ depending on uh, on who you ask. Um, but to answer your question, I think restricting too much speech is never going to solve anything. Um, if if uh, in 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 terms of the the specific issue at hand here, which is terrorism, I think. Uh, censorship and um, persecuting uh, specific groups for you know their beliefs or opinions uh, has in looking at it from an historical context never been an effective way of fighting uh, either terrorism or insurgency on the other hand uh, it's it's led to an, an opposite reaction um, today we have this dilemma where we uh, are thinking about ways of tackling the the global uh, far-right terrorist movement online rights. Um, so a lot of these people who, who like like uh, the Chrysler shooter, like Breivik, like the like the Halle attacker, uh, and to some extent also the El Paso shooter, um, have all been sort of moving around in an online environment that um, 
sort of goes between the extreme uh, of those people who are willing to take uh, to to resort to violence um, to get their message across to people who might just have views that you and I find offensive, uh, but would never actually do something uh, in real life. So the struggle there is to uh, find a good balance so that we actually um, can take action on content that could, in fact, lead to violent violent actions or can inspire violent actions um, or incite to violent actions, um, whilst also making sure that we don't feed into a specific grievance narrative that a lot of the far right has, which is just which is that they're being uh, chased off the internet, that there's sort of a global leftist conspiracy running running big tech, for example. Uh, so we need to think carefully so that we don't give them more ammunition uh, in, in, in that sense. In educating the global tech industry, uh, as well as governments, we hear of examples coming up again and again. Um, is the work that Tech Against Terrorism doing uh, a reaction to certain tragedies, or is it trying to preempt and stop these things before they happen? And how can you predict what the next terrorist group might want to do and how it might want to do it? Those are all really good questions. Um, I mean, to be honest with you, our Tech Against Terrorism is to some extent a reaction to what was very much a big problem back in 2016 when we were launched is that and that is that a lot of a lot of ISIS supporters were were present and active on platforms like Twitter like Facebook um uh, since then, through the establishment of the Global Internet Forum to Counterterrorism, which is a coalition set up by Facebook, Twitter, Microsoft and Google that we actually helped launch back in 2017, a lot of these big platforms have become a lot better at dealing with this problem. But one effect of that is that smaller tech platforms are now bearing the brunt of, of this problem, given that this is where they can, uh, that, that where terrorists can find more safe environments, given, given such smaller tech platforms' uh, lack of resources to take action on the problem but going back to your question to that extent we are a reactive we we are a reactive uh, organization however our work now is very much proactive in that we are uh, trying to give tech companies the tools and the expertise to sort of take action on on terrorist content or activity on their sites in a way that's effective and, and, and human rights compliant so we very much encourage platform encourage platforms to to come to us and, and speak to us if, if even if they haven't had any specific use cases of exploitation on their sites uh, because it's always good to be to be proactive and really think through uh, policy and pro- process around these issues because what often happens when 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 you react to one specific event, for example, is that um, uh, it might end up being uh, oversellers, it might end up being an overreaction. So we very much in- encourage tech companies to to think this uh, through uh, in a proactive manner. What tools are available to these smaller platforms as well as larger ones to detect this content? Yeah, so in 2017, we launched something called the Knowledge Sharing Platform. Um, and that is exactly what it sounds like. It's a platform to to share knowledge and best practice. Uh, it's for tech companies only. So uh, tech companies register with us and go through a sort of vetting procedure um, before getting access to this, to this platform. So on there, they can find... Um, uh, educational tools and products helping them with uh, identifying terrorist content, for example, through symbols and terminology. But also, um, 
resources to help them think through some of those things I just mentioned around policy, around uh, content moderation, around transparency reporting. And as of 2019, we're working closely with uh, the government of Canada to build something called the Terrorist Content Analytics Platform. So that will be the uh, the first free centralized uh, database of verified terrorist content. Uh, and it will have two target audiences. Uh, the first one is tech companies. So uh, giving tech companies um, a chance to, or, or an opportunity to examine uh, terrorist material in a secure uh, environment to help them inform their moderation decisions. But it will also um, act as an alert service for tech companies that have signed up to it. So meaning that if a URL from platform X comes in, we will ping them to know that uh, this content has been found on your sites um, and uh, then allow them to sort of make an independent decision. Because this is not about, you know, enforcing our opinion on tech companies. Tech company autonomy is, is very much key uh, in, in this project. And the second sort of target audience is uh, academics studying terrorist use of the internet. So this will be a platform containing uh, not only the content itself, whether it be videos, audio, uh, PDFs, uh, anything, uh, but also the metadata and, and everything around the content itself so that to, to sort of help instigate quantitative analysis of terrorist use of the internet. So that's something that we're building right now. We've just concluded a uh, an online consultation process where we, where we sought input from tech companies, academia, civil society. Um, uh, on on this specific project. So, but if there's anyone who's interested in in sharing some thoughts or learning more about that project, I'm happy to to share some links and maybe you can you can share them with your audience. Yeah. So, looking at those things, so building a database of data that could be used to test if they are related to certain terrorist material, so they could be flagged and checked. Hmm. So that would re- rely on the material to be similar to what has been posted before. Often the phrase that's used is dog whistle. So as it's almost a cat and mouse game, so as um, one phrase or whatever grows and then gets found to be connected to whichever group, uh, they stop using it and they move to another they move to another phrase or symbol or whatever it is that they're using to represent themselves. Is it possible to catch these things and stop them growing? And how would, how would that happen? I think it's certainly a challenge, but I do think that um, the key here is to is to foster cross-sector collaboration, right? So, you know, we're a small team here at Tech Against Terrorism, we're only uh, five people. Uh, but what we do really well is that we leverage partnerships with research institutions, with civil society, with academia, and sort of pair these people up with, with tech companies whenever necessary or relevant. So, yes, it would be very difficult to, to sort of, if, if you're talking about stopping this in real time or it within a very sort of limited uh, window, that's obviously very very, very difficult. But in terms of uh, leveraging expertise and ensuring that the tech company, the tech companies gets an insight into what the, these things might look like and the sim- this symbolism might look like, then it's definitely uh, possible to uh, to mitigate a lot of the spread and to uh, build uh, more capacity within the tech industry. What does it take to work for Tech Against Terrorism? 
Oh, I mean, we're a small team, right? So it, I think it definitely, without sounding uh, <laughs> like I'm encouraging anyone to work more than a 40-hour work week, I think you will need to be prepared to work very, very hard. You also need to be interested in uh, learning new skills uh, and uh, getting stuck into new sort of policy areas. Because even even though we're quite niche in, in our aim and our mission in, in supporting tech companies on, on the sort of counterterrorism issue, the wider set of policy issues that you need to sort of stay updated on that's that's it's quite wide so that's everything from uh, terrorism terrorism studies counterterrorism uh, human rights tech policy digital rights and, and to some extent international law and you know the legal debate as well seeing as a lot of governments are now rolling out legislative uh, agendas uh, to, to counter uh, online terrorist content for example so I think you need to be curious I think that's that's the key word and you also need to be ready to to be put into situations that might feel a bit daunting but are really good from a professional uh, development point of view and what is your background my background is in Middle East studies and, and Arabic, actually. Um, so I studied uh, Middle East studies both for my BA and MA, which, I mean, I guess things turned out all right. But in hindsight, I probably would have, I wouldn't have advised myself to do that now. So uh, so I sort of came in uh, that way. I, was, I wasn't necessarily too interested in, in counterterrorism back during my MA, but I ended up getting getting a job uh, doing counterterrorism research after, after uni. And then I thought that this is pretty interesting and then I sort of and here I am <laughs> Excellent how have you had to adapt your skill set from uh, what you studied to what you do nowadays I mean the most obvious example I can I can give is um, that of of writing uh, so report writing in an office compared to writing essays I think throughout my various work experiences at least I've definitely uh gotten way more effective uh, in, in, in the way I write and being more concise and to the point. I actually, for some reason, I don't know why I decided to torture myself this way, but a few weeks ago I actually looked back at my, my MA thesis and just did not understand any points that I made throughout the process because it was just full of uh, drivel and academic jargon nonsense. So I think that's definitely a, a key lesson. Um, to be honest, you know, I mean, I really enjoyed my studies, but I, I do enjoy working more. I think it's there's more for me. There's more satisfaction in you know seeing projects through and feeling that even though we you know we we have a million things going on here in the office, I think there's some sort of there's some pleasure in in the fact that you can sort of uh, complete a report, complete a a project, and and you know go home for the day. Uh, whereas I whereas I at least felt that at uni I would I would never be done, and I would just like stress constantly about essays. And, 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 and tests and exams and that kind of thing. Yeah, so curiosity, hard work, that seems to be a theme between yeah. <laughs> some of our podcasts. Working on a small team must be quite interesting. How is it working on a team as opposed to working by yourself? It's different. I think we have, um, to some extent, given that we're such a small team here at Take Against Terrorists, and we have, yeah, it's definitely teamwork, and we, we do a lot of projects collaboratively. But given that we're so small, it can be quite individualistic in the sense that one person, you know, has ownership of a specific project and specific, you know, deliverables. So in that sense, it, it's it's probably quite quite special and, and definitely different from from the workplaces that I've been in the past that have been a lot bigger. Having said that, it's obviously more fun to do it together with smart and clever colleagues, which which I, which I definitely have. So I think I definitely prefer 
prefer being in a, in a tight-knit team than being on my own. And uh, are you expecting to grow over years to come? Certainly hoping to. As you can imagine, the NGO field is not flooded with money. So uh, we're doing our best to sort of increase capacity. We'd like to sort of expand our open source intelligence team, but also our sort of main research team, which is the team that, that I lead. So certainly hoping to, and we're certainly working very hard to it. And, and uh, I personally have great hopes for the year ahead in that regard. It's, it's really good that you guys are interested in this. I think it'd be good to have more engineering people and data scientists and, and, and that kind of expertise getting involved in, in this field because often it's like myself, people with a security or whatever background uh, getting involved without the sort of technical know-how. Mm. But it's when you pair that, that's really sort of the... Yeah, that's one of the reasons we've been so keen to talk to you today. Learning about opportunities in data science and computer science has a different perspective on the engineering applications beyond the episodes we've done so far. So thank you for speaking to me. It's been really fascinating. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Ingenious, please subscribe and share the podcast with friends. We'd also love to hear your feedback. To get in touch or find out more about us and our guests, head to ingeniouspod.org. Music for our episodes is kindly provided by Yemzo Katana. Check him out on SoundCloud.